The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. Okay. Um, so thanks for coming. I want to start off with a story about uh, someone who shot up his workplace with an assault rifle. Get ready for lots of stuff like this in this uh, talk. But what may be a little different than the story you're used to is that this happened 50 years ago. Uh, it's a story taken from a book called Detroit, I Do Mind Dying about the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. And I'm adapting something that uh, Joe Allen wrote up in Socialist Worker a couple years ago. And what you'll find is that almost everything that happened in the aftermath of this story is pretty different than what we're used to. On July 15, 1970, James Johnson, an African-American, walked into Chrysler Corporation's Eldon Avenue Gear and AXA plant, where he had been told earlier that day that he was fired. Hidden in his overalls was an M1 carbine rifle. Soon after entering, he spotted one of the foremen who had fired him. Johnson took out the M1 and shot one white foreman, one black foreman, and a white auto worker, killing all three. At first, many of Johnson's co-workers were simply stunned by what happened. But sympathy for him grew as his story and the many struggles at Eldon began to be made public. Workers learned that he had received a suspension the morning of the shooting after he had refused to participate in a work speed-up. Later, Eldon workers learned of other disputes involving lost pay and lost vacation time in which Johnson had been treated unfairly. Kenneth Cockrell, a radical attorney who had taken on and won difficult police brutality cases, came forward to defend Johnson. Cockrell was also a member of the executive committee of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which had become well known for leading job actions over the very working conditions that drove Johnson to murder. Cockrell's strategy was to put Chrysler on trial, repeating the words, Chrysler pulled the trigger. Cockrell presented evidence that Eldon was one of the most dangerous plants in the United States, and as a climax to the defense, he took the entire jury to the scene of the crime so they could judge the conditions for themselves. The jury found James Johnson not responsible for his actions. The judge, the judge was furious. So I start off with this story, um, not to say that our strategy is let's go defend people who shoot up their workplaces, but to talk about, to just give a sense of what different political context means to debates over guns. To begin with, why did Ken Cockrell focus on Chrysler? Why not focus on the gun industry, let's say, right? Um, I would say, first of all, he was a socialist revolutionary looking to show the brutality of some of the most powerful capitalist institutions. He was in Detroit, and that was the auto industry. Second, and in some ways more interestingly, he was a lawyer trying to get his client off. And this was an argument that worked in black Detroit in 1970. Now, a lawyer may not make that case today, whatever their, their politics. Maybe a lawyer would go after gun companies, um, and that would work. But it shows at the time an awareness in Detroit in 1970 that workplace violence and mass shootings was a societal issue, it comes from the pressure cooker of the conditions people are under, and not about some that there's a handful of inherently unstable people out there and you never know when they're the ones that are going to snap, and how do we find them in advance. Now a lot has changed in the last 50 years. Back then the militants arguing for the right to carry guns openly were on the left. It was the Black Panther Party strategy of armed patrols to monitor and confront police brutality. Back then, gun control was a reactionary strategy of criminalization pushed by Republicans like Richard Nixon and then California Governor Ronald Reagan as they supported mass support for the Panthers and also urban riots involving armed black veterans of the Vietnam War. Today, the militants who, are, who argue for the right to open carry are reactionaries in the NRA and militias like the Oath Keepers and worse. And the vision they promote isn't collective resistance against oppression, but paranoid individualism, uh, warped masculinity, and racism. Slow down, just a little. Slow down a little bit? Sure. 
and stop the people trying to stop the spread of guns. That's the demand to stop the spread of guns um, is coming from radicalizing high school students pouring out of their schools in protest after the latest mass shootings, worried that they're going to be the ones who are next. So the point I make just by starting with this sort of context-bending example story um, is just that gun violence and gun control aren't as simple issues as they're often made out to be, certainly when they're divorced from a wider political context of what's going on in the world. Um, the political life we all experience every day on social media is a, is a new kind of literal political economy, a clickbait industrial complex that relies on erasing context to produce continuous emotions in us, shock, outrage, fear, occasionally we get joy. Um, and it's not some conscious plan to brainwash us or keep us silent, but it's just about generating clicks um, for ad revenue and political donations. But it does have the effect of denying us the mental space and sometimes the collective spaces to think through and discuss complicated issues amongst ourselves. And I think the politics of guns are a very clear example of that. After every horrific shooting, there tends to be a, a very simplistic shouting match where on the one side it's just, if only he didn't have a gun, and on the other side it's if only everybody had guns. And what the shouting can often mask is a, is a shared uh, belief, a consensus across the mainstream that there's nothing we can actually do about the societal uh, impulses for violence. And that we do, both sides agree, we do need more good guys with guns to stop them. It's just one side thinks that the police alone are those good guys, and the other side thinks that they're not, and we need vigilante um, violence. And as socialist worker, we've been trying to argue something different for the last couple of years and develop some ideas you know, on the left about what to say around gun violence. And I want to try to put, put, push that conversation forward a little more today. I'm going to be arguing basically three main points. Point number one, the horrific amount of gun violence in this country is clearly connected to the ridiculous number of guns in this country and the astonishing laxness of our gun laws. Um, our gun politics, like the rest of our politics, are hijacked by a far right-wing minority that's at the helm of one of the two major parties. And so we need to fight the poisonous politics of you know, what, what, what I call gun fundamentalism, preached by the NRA, and try to reduce the number of guns held both by private citizens and by the state. Point number two, however, the gun control movement, and we've, as we've known it, is dominated by centrist elites, people like Michael Bloomberg and big city police chiefs, who don't offer a way forward against gun fundamentalism any more than the Clintonite Democratic Party has offered a way forward against right-wing Republicans. Their framework relies on increased criminalization and erasing the larger social issues that, that produce violence. And so the result is that the gun debate in this country hasn't had a left and a right, it's had a right and a center, which should sound familiar because that's what all of our politics have had in this country. And we generally know what that means. The right wins, even, when it, even whether or not it represents actually majority sentiment. And the last point I'm going to try to make is that therefore we need to create a left wing of the fight against gun fundamentalism and reducing gun violence. And this left wing might should should support some of the already existing gun control demands, especially ones that go after the gun industry, the NRA, but also understand that those demands are going to be won by a movement for liberation, not criminalization. And finally, I want to talk, I'm going to talk about how I think the moment we saw after the Parkland shooting and, and the emergence of an actual mass movement against gun violence represents what may be a turning point where it's possible to build that kind of, that kind of a left. And so the point of this talk is going to try to lay out a little more what that can mean. 
But first, let's go through a very quick, horrifying tour of gun violence in this country. Um, so, and I, I'm going to try to be quick about this, because I think people, this is the part that people probably agree with the most, right, or, and, and kind of know. The U.S. has far more gun deaths than any other uh, wealthy nation that isn't going through war, right? Um, there were almost 10, 12 gun deaths per 100,000 people in this country uh, in recent years. That's six times as high as the rate in Canada. It's almost 50 times as high as the rate in Great Britain. Um, people, one thing people should be clear about is this has pretty much always been the case. I mean, through the entire 20th century, the U.S. had like these types of higher uh, rates of gun deaths um, than other countries. That doesn't, but that doesn't change the fact that that just means this tra this tragedy has been going on for an incredible. That's just more dead people. <laughs> that, that shouldn't that shouldn't be. That's not meant to minimize it. Um, people also probably know the U.S. has far more guns um, than any other country. 300 million guns in this country. Three times as many as Canada. 20 times as many as Britain. Um, we have no idea how many guns are held by police, by border patrol, by ICE, by prisons. Or at least I don't think private civilians can. They don't. They don't count that. Just like they don't count the bodies that they that they leave behind um, laws and regulations on gun industry they're not just lax I mean some of the laws we have are literally part of the gun <laughs> the gun cult I mean to say that the Food and Drug Administration has a full page on its website of research into the health effects of hair products but the Center for Disease Control is banned from funding research uh, into gun the causes of gun violence, right? That, 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 that's one law. Um, gun corporations, almost uniquely among American corporations, are granted immunity from virtually all lawsuits uh, over, over their products. So these, these, are, these are not gun regulations at all. These are laws that promote a gun, a gun cult. Um, what people may have sometimes heard is the gun show loophole means that at gun shows and flea markets, anybody can go buy, sell guns to each other without licenses or documentation. Compare that to cars, compare that to any other number of products, and it's just, it's, it's wacky. Um, now, one of the, just talk a little bit, just get back to the people dying part. Um, one of the things that's a little confusing about gun politics is that the reason why we're even having this talk, right, the reason why we spend some, the most time talking about gun violence is about mass shootings, even though those are what kill by far the fewest number of people uh, with guns. You know, the biggest crisis of gun violence uh, is suicide, and it's not even close. Uh, almost two-thirds of gun deaths come from suicides. And um, a CDC study, which is they are allowed to study suicides, um, found uh, that, that there's been a 20% increase in suicide since 1999. I know a lot of people know that's, that's, that just came out pretty recently. Uh, we're going to get back a little bit later to suicides and, and what um, some of the demands, I think, how they relate to that. Homicides account for one-third of gun deaths. They're obviously talked about a lot more than suicides. Um, the victims and perpetrators, or people may probably know, are overwhelmingly poor and working class, disproportionately black. Um, even among homicides, the ones that tend to gain the attention committed by strangers or break-ins, whatever, are not the majority of homicides. The vast majority of homicides are committed by people someone knows, an abusive husband, uh, neighborhood rivals, gang violence, etc. Among, with, among over half American women killed with guns are killed by intimate partners or family members. Um, so then we get to mass shootings, which, which of course we know is a tiny percentage of shootings, but that doesn't make it less uh, important. Obviously, it's like it, it's both. It, there's the feeling that it can happen to anyone anywhere, but it's also a sense that there's something deeply sick with the society that's seeing an increase um, in mass shootings. I think it's also really important to talk about mass shootings because 
by all accounts, it's not only is the rate going like, to increasing, but it, there's no reason to think that mass shootings aren't actually going to get worse and more frequent. I mean, I don't want to be um, crying, you know, in inducing panic or whatever, but if you think about the fact that some of the main things that, that cause workplace shootings seem to be the atomizing conditions of people having no collective uh, solution, and, and then we just had a Janus ruling that might be stripping millions of public sector workers of, um, of, their, of their right to collectively uh, fight for their rights, that's not a good sign for the future of workplace shootings. It may, it may take a couple years. When you think about the possible increases in political violence, whether it's the shooting in the Annapolis newsroom we saw, which I know is more personal than um, political, but the kind of violence whipped up by Trump and Fox News, you know what I mean? Things can actually get worse when it comes to mass shootings. Uh, or I know a recent poll showed that a third of people in this country think that a civil war is likely in the coming years. And to me, it's less the, I'm less worried about the civil war than a bunch of those people who think that civil war is likely and the way they're, they're uh, preparing for it, right? So I'm saying this again, not to like so panic, but mass shootings are absolutely essential issue. And yet at the same time, when we talk about how different you know, gun laws or whatever can reduce violence, we have to keep in mind we're not mostly talking about mass shootings. So we'll, we'll come back to that a little later. What I want to get into now, though, is how did this come to be? Why does this country have so many more guns and so much more gun violence uh, than other places? And I'll tell you that as soon as I take a drink. How long have Okay. Am I still going too fast? Is it, is it better? Hmm? Okay. So, um, I find two books particularly useful for sort of the history of, you know, get, getting your head around like what some of the unique factors in this country's gun history. One, um, which Nikki already mentioned, is Loaded by Roxanne Dunbar-Tees. Um, the Gunning of America by Pamela Hag is, is also um, really, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna talk about both these books a lot. They're very different. Um, Loaded focuses on America's unique history as a settler colonial nation. I'll talk about that phrase in a second. Um, meaning that from the start, it had an interest in promoting the majority of its population to be armed in a way that's very different than most countries. Um, Pamela Hag, I don't know if it's Hag or Hag, but Pamela, I'm going to say Hag. Hag's book focuses more on America's unique history as the home of the gun industry, um, which led to gun and, and, the, and the impulse, for, uh, the, the, the incentive for guns in this country to be treated like any other commodity as opposed to an obvious public health danger. Um, there's differences in the books. I think Roxanne Dombartis has some, in her book, has some criticisms of Hag's book that I think are valid, but together I think they really do give a pretty complete picture that I'm going to summarize in like five minutes of all this work they did. So get ready for some vast oversimplification. Um, so starting with settler colonialism. Um, Hang on, I lost my place. Okay, let's start with settler colonialism, a term that means this country was founded on enlisting the majority of its population of poor whites to greater or lesser degrees in the project of conquest over Native Americans, as well as maintaining a system of slavery uh, over, over black people. So most ruling classes throughout history have not wanted their masses to be armed for pretty obvious reasons. In 17th century England, only men with estates worth more than 100 pounds, which was a lot back then, were allowed to own a gun. At the very same time in colonial Virginia, all white men were required or expected to own one for slavery, patrol duty, for, for fighting uh, Indians. When the U.S. gained independence, it passed the Militia Act of 1792, which required essentially every male of military age to own a musket or rifle and ammunition and have their guns inspected and registered on public rolls. 
Now, at the same time, his, uh, the constitutional historian Henry Winkler has noted that there were many states in the early years that also had laws against carrying concealed weapons in public. Interestingly, it happened to be in the West and the South, Kentucky, Alabama, Virginia, Louisiana, Ohio, etc. So it wasn't some like abstract gun fanaticism of the right to a gun everywhere. This was actually, the gun culture then was a practical response to the brutal needs of maintaining slavery and Indian um, conquest. And so this is the society we should picture when you think about the much debated wording of the Second Amendment. Of Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. Roxanne, one of the central arguments of Loaded is that both the NRA and liberals get the history of the Second Amendment wrong. That on the one hand, it wasn't about individual freedom against a tyrannical government, and at the same time, it's not some footnote of history that has little to do with the true character of American society. It's a really important argument that she's making there. Um, moving on a little bit, the first episode in, in American history of, of trying to strip uh, some people's uh, right of the uh, ability to own guns came after the Second War. Sec came after the Civil War. Anybody want to guess which segment of the population people were trying to keep guns away from after the Civil War? I'll quote Adam Winkler again. After losing the Civil War, southern states quickly adopted the Black Codes to reestablish white supremacy. One common provision barred blacks from possessing firearms. To enforce the gunman, gun ban, white men formed posses, including the KKK, to terrorize black communities. And Winkler also notes that black people and their supporters resisted this by invoking their Second Amendment rights. General, general, the, the general who is in charge of enforcing Reconstruction in South Carolina ordered in 1866 that the constitutional rights of all loyal and well-disposed inhabitants to bear arms should not be infringed. And when that order got ignored, Congress passed the Freedmen's Bureau Act of July 1866, which assured ex-slaves the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings concerning personal liberty, including the constitutional right to bear arms. So while these battles were raging in the South during what's known as Reconstruction, in the West, what was to become the final round of Indian Wars was opening up, and where the newly invented repeat action guns by companies like Winchester, Remington, and Colt found a big market for battles with both Western Indian nations and for killing buffalo, which were widely seen at the time as accomplishing the same purpose. These wars against both Indians and Buffalo had largely been finished by the, by, by the 20th century, but then the cultural image of the heroic lone Western gunman became an icon for American manhood for most of the 20th century. And that takes us more to Pamela Hagg's book, because who was it that played a big role in promoting that image was the gun industry. Not, not just them, but so um, she has an important story um, to tell. Guns are one of the first industrially produced uh, commodities in this country. They were spurred by Eli Whitney's development of interchangeable parts um, so the guns could be mass produced instead of being made by gunsmiths, you know, artisans. And there's a, there's a little part of Hag's book that's really fascinating about how the same, you know, throughout the 1800s and going into the early 1900s, gun companies are developing techniques known as tailorism, you know, like assembly lines, very dehumanizing conditions for workers at the same time that they're projecting these images of like just a cowboy with his dog and his gun and mountains in the background and, you know, so, you know stuff like that. Which the very thing that the probably the workers slaving away in those factories would, you know, it's appealing to, to those people living in those dehumanizing um, conditions. But the biggest market for guns has and always will be the military, and this is also a very important, if slightly underwritten part of Hag's book. 
Um, back in the days before the U.S. had a massive standing army with bases all over the world, wars actually presented a problem for gun makers that she talks about very well, which may seem contradictory. But yeah, like during the war, it's a bonanza. You know what I mean? They can make, they could sell tons of guns. But wars then end, and demand drops through the floor, and all that capacity that the gun industries had to build in order to meet the demands of war could quickly put them um, out of business. And so one solution for this would be for to have a nationalized gun industry take the profit motive out of it. Um, I know there's many problems with that, but just, just for, this one, um, for this one issue. And there were occasional calls for that um, in its early years. But this being America, laissez-faire capitalism won out. Uh, and the result was that in the 19th and 20th centuries, the, the, the biggest rising world imperial power in the world needed a healthy private gun industry with thriving gun sales for the sake of military readiness in when, when war came. Um, this came up explicitly in the 1930s. So remember the 1920s, the period of Al Capone and Prohibition. By the way, Prohibition doesn't work. We're going to come back to that too. But during Prohibition, um, when the incredible gun violence from things called Tommy guns, which were machine guns that were manufactured by Colt at the end of World War I, and then there was no more market, and oh, suddenly they were in the hands of all these Chicago gangsters. Um, so when machine gun violence created a, a bit of a sentiment in the 1930s for like some more kind of gun control legislation, there was testimony um, before Congress, and the vice president of Colt gave a warning to the congressman. He said, we were very valuable to, to the government during the war, meaning World War I. We cannot maintain a plant to assist the government in cause of war unless we stay in business, right? So this kind of very unique American feature of both being this massive imperial power, but also having like relying on private gun industry. This is less the case today, but this is part of the origins of how we sort of got to this point today. Um, one last point about this is, incidentally, the NRA is often said to have started off as sort of just a simple organization for hunters and sportsmen before it was taken over by right-wing zealots. And there's an element of truth in that, but it's not, that origin story isn't actually true. It was founded by Civil War veterans concerned in the late 1800s that the long peacetime was eroding the citizenry's shooting skills and thus making us less prepared for war. And so with the support of both the gun industry and the government, the NRA started off as an organization promoting shooting competitions is sort of a patriotic skill, okay? So all of which takes us to the modern NRA, that the right-wing takeover part, which specifically happened at a 1977 convention in Cincinnati, um, where it was uh, led by Harlan Carter, a former head of the Border Patrol, who, you know, by the way, when he was a 17-year-old in Texas, shot and killed a Latino kid and got off on a technicality. Um, has nothing to do with the NRA's politics, though. Um, <laughs> Ever since then, for the last 40 years, the NRA has embodied both the traditions of settler colonialism that Roxanne dunbar writes about, and been funded by the immoral gun capitalists written about by Pamela Hogg. And it's combined those two forces with the features of the late 20th century reactionary movement that sees all social welfare programs as tyrannical assaults on individual freedom. The NRA preaches um, gun fundamentalism, an idea that Patrick Blanchfield wrote about, saying, to them, gun ownership isn't just a civil right, it's the civil right, upon which all other rights depend. And this is basically, whenever you hear Wayne LaPierre talk, head of the NRA, after a warning about gun control, this is, this is the warning he always sounds. They want more government control. Their goal is to eliminate the Second Amendment and our firearms freedoms so they can eradicate all individual freedoms. That's the heart of the NRA's politics. Couple things to note about this gun fundamentalism. First, 
This view that gun regulations are tyranny is an important ideological glue in the Republican Party for sort of connecting all sorts of voters who are into guns with the kind of economic libertarianism of the Koch brothers who are out to destroy labor regulations, health regulations, um, etc. The second one is that it's drenched in white supremacy, right? I mean, the NRA is silent when African Americans like Philando Castile and Marissa Alexander um, have been killed for lawful, or for killed or imprisoned for lawfully possessing and are using their guns. The NRA was Trump before Trump, a hard right-wing minority whose power far outstrips its support in the population, even among gun owners, and sometimes even among dues-paying NRA members, right? Um, just to use an example of, of background checks, which I'm going to go into later why I think we should be opposed to background checks, but as an indication of the sort of the gap between uh, where the NRA stands and its members, 78% of gun owners and 69% of NRA members support universal background checks and ending the gun show loophole, which obviously the NRA fights very hard um, against. So it just kind of puncture the myth that the NRA just has an army of like robotic followers to go out to the polls. That myth really was given a huge boost by Bill Clinton in 1994. What happened in 1994? Well, Bill Clinton had um, Come, had been elected on promises of national health care um, and defending the union movement, and instead he negotiated NAFTA, um, and health care went nowhere. And in the midterm elections, the Republicans swept into Congress. But rather than looking at you know maybe his own actions or the failure of Democrats to turn out, Clinton famously ascribed the defeat to the NRA because of the assault weapons ban that had been passed. And so and, and really helped to pull up this idea that the NRA is this unstoppable force. And if you if you mess with any kind of gun laws, they'll come after you. From the beginning, has also been a very convenient excuse of Democrats about their own failure um, to motivate people. Um, but just be, just because we can talk about how the NRA doesn't you know is isn't um, broadly popular doesn't mean that their hold on power isn't real. I mean this that should be the lesson we've all been learning for the last two years under Donald Trump, right? Um, that it's not enough just because you know Donald Trump has not been popular from the time he started running through now didn't didn't stop him from being able to win uh, win office when, when you, in situations where you have a right and a center uh, and no left. It's not, an, it, we found that it's not enough just to be anti-Trump, it's not enough just to be anti-mass shootings, right? Um, to take on the gun fundamentalists of the right, we have to build a left with a positive vision for stopping gun violence based on the power and politics of those who are its greatest victims, people of color, women, veterans, poor and working class people. And to do that, we're gonna to need to build a different type of anti-gun violence politics than what's usually called gun control. So here, this is, I want to raise a disagreement I have with a piece that came out in Jacobin this spring by uh, Nivedita uh, Majumdar, and I apologize for messing up uh, the pronunciation of her name. It was called The Socialist Case for Gun Control, and it basically argued that the left has misguidedly opposed gun control because we have romanticized notions of armed rebellion, um, and we ignore concrete anti-violence reforms in favor of sort of abstractly talking about the root causes of violence. So I agree um, with uh, Majumdar that socialists do have to update our understanding of gun politics to the era when the NRA are the gun radicals and not the Black Panthers, right? Um, and I also think, and we'll go into this, there's some policies supported by gun control advocates that we should support. I think there's some that we shouldn't. Um, but while gun politics has changed greatly over 50 years, I still think the framework known as gun control is deeply um, problematic. Today's gun control politics aren't led by reactionaries uh, trying to suppress the Black Panthers like Ronald Reagan, 
They're led by centrists like Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire former mayor of New York. It's gonna get dangerous here. When I start talking about Bloomberg, I sometimes can't stop, so I'm re I really gotta keep myself for just like a minute on this, on this point. Um, but in the early 2000s, Bloomberg gained a reputation as one of the few politicians willing to take on the NRA. Uh, he formed Mayors Against Illegal Guns, which he later merged with a parents uh, gun control group to form Every Town for Gun Safety, which I think is like the largest gun control group in the country at this point. There's thousands of ordinary people, including family members of people who've been killed, who've worked tirelessly for decades for gun regulations. Um, but I think it's more Bloomberg and the big city police chiefs who set the political agenda um, for a lot of this stuff. Bloomberg's politics, he's a neoliberal technocrat, right? He's a widely hailed public health philanthropist because he pushes for soda taxes to fight obesity, but he was fine with dozens of hospitals closing in New York City because, you know, that's how the market works. There's nothing you can do about that, right? That's what being a neoliberal technocrat is. And similarly, on gun control, Bloomberg, in his, in his 12 years as mayor, and he bought that last term, sorry, got to rein that in, stop talking about Bloomberg. Uh, in his 12 years as mayor, Bloomberg had nothing to say about the role that the city massive poverty rate and unemployment among young people of color might have had to do with gun violence. Instead, his entire plan around gun control was the massively unconstitutional policy known as stop and frisk, in which millions of mostly young men of color were searched by police without justification in the name of finding guns that were almost never to be found. Um, another way to look at this policy is that Michael Bloomberg's gun control policy was to flood black and brown neighborhoods with guns in the hands of police officers who sometimes use them, right? That's, neo, that, that's one aspect of neoliberal gun control. And just to pull away from Bloomberg so people don't just think I'm talking about my city of New York or Michael Bloomberg, this has also been, this criminalization um, and oppression has been part of the, the gun control movement of the Democratic Party. Go back to um, after Omar Mateen's horrific shooting in the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Senate Democrats had, had a widely publicized sit-in on the Senate floor, a filibuster, to push for bipartisan legislation to do what? To bar people on terrorism watch lists from buying guns. Now just, just to get your head around how cravenly Islamophobic this was, Omar Mateen wasn't on any watch list. So this law wouldn't have done anything about that, right? Not only that, the no-fly list was notorious for ensnaring innocent people, overwhelmingly Arab and Muslim, for reasons like clerical errors, um, having a name similar to someone else, or because they refused to cooperate in snitching on um, other people. Democrats knew about all the flaws in this list. You know why we knew Democrats knew? Because one of the people leading that filibuster, John Lewis, himself had had his name accidentally put on the no-fly list, right? So John Lewis's name on it was on it, Omar Mateen's wasn't, but this was their big approach um, to stopping it. it it's, it's, this, is, this is a problem. So this is, this, okay, oh shit. This has been the gun control movement, and there's pretty good reasons why socialists haven't wanted to get on board with it, okay? So to me, the question is less, are we for or against gun control? It's not the right starting point. We need a different approach to stopping gun violence, and I'm going to spend the rest of my talk um, going through what I think so, you know, some of the bases that could be. One more, one more break. Okay, 
So first, I think we should be all for demands that go after the power and impunity of the gun industry and the NRA. We should try to come up with many more to go after these profiteers of death, right? Get rid of the ban on CDC funding into research and the immunity on gun manufacturers. Sales of guns should be regulated as le at least as much as sales of cars. Guns should have at least as many safety regulations as prescription drugs. I mean, there's, there's many things we can go uh, into with this that I think absolutely are important to go after. It also is worth saying, we need a gun, we need a movement against gun violence that goes after the other main pushers of gun violence and gun worship that are in our government, right? So protesting war is protesting gun violence. Protesting police shootings is protesting gun violence, right? It's absurd, but almost completely universal in mainstream politics to pretend that this era of mass shootings has nothing to do with this being the period of the longest continuous war in US history. And then the corresponding militarization of police who routinely don Kevlar and carry assault rifles in, in public places, right? Why is it that after Adam Lanza's massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School, no one in the media gave much thought to the fact that his dead body was found decked out in military camouflage. After the Orlando shooting, the Daily News had to cover a big headline with a Marine holding a machine gun in Iraq with the headline, no civilian should own this gun. So this was supposed to be like a big liberal anti-gun statement, you know, like, these are for killing brown people over there, not white people here, liberalism, you know, like that. Um, and even beyond that, it doesn't even work like that. It doesn't even work like that because the gun companies who make machine guns for soldiers to kill over there eventually produce slightly altered civilian models for here. And it's not just the guns that come home, it's the bloodlust, it's the racism, it's, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's a, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, but then there's, there's, there's some huge questions. Well, what does it mean to say, how do we reduce the number of guns in this country? I think this is the stuff that we need. I don't have the answers, so I want to throw out some ideas, but I think we need debates that are not on the basis of like, are we for or against gun control? Um, so certainly I think, um, we should support buyback programs accompanied by public health campaigns letting people know about the risks of having guns in the house. We should support demilitarizing police and paramilitary agencies like ICE and the Border Patrol. I mean, there's a real step forward that on the March 14th student walkouts around the country, one of the four demands was about ending the 1033 program that transfers surplus military weaponry to local police departments. This was a real step forward. Um, but then when it comes to more outright bans on gun production, like, you know, past or future, it's trickier. I have questions. Um, it's clear to me that there would be fewer gun deaths if there were fewer guns. It's less clear to me how effective bans would be when there's clearly a large demand uh, in this country. And whether or not a resulting underground economy where suddenly gun sales are illegal and criminalized, if that couldn't create uh, even more violence that, that we don't currently have. How many people have heard of uh, Australia's gun control efforts in the 90s? It's, it's pretty well known. So in 1996, Australia passed a combination of different laws, including bans on certain types of rifles and increased requirements for licensing, registration, and safe storage. It had a dramatic effect. Gun deaths have gone down. Um, Australia never had a lot of mass shootings, but there hasn't been any. Um, since that happened. And so some people point to that as sort of just flat proof that therefore these laws can work here. And I don't have, I don't want to argue one or the other, but I, I would just say it's worth people understanding that Australia, even at the time, had one-sixth of the rates of gun ownership as this country did. And I bring that up to say not only does that mean there's way more guns to reduce here, but a gun culture is very different in a place where six times as many people 
own guns, and so therefore there is, you know, these are, these are things that I think we've got to um, think about. There's clearly, for all the historical reasons I laid out, a very strong demand for guns in this country. And history shows that it's a pretty bad idea when you try to have prohibition on highly dangerous substances, like, but that, the, that things that the majority of people use safely, like drugs or alcohol, right? These are things we've got to think about. Um, and, and like I said, I've got more questions than answers on them. One thing that I have fewer questions about is that I think we have to stand firm against any kind of policies of increased criminalization, um, stop and frisk, obviously, increased jail sentences uh, for, for, for guns. But I also think we have to stand very firm against policies of profiling. And that's what background checks are as they're currently written. Let me be, um, it would be one thing, and this is a really important point because background checks are easily the most widely supported uh, measures that fall under the category of gun control. It would be one thing if background checks were based on actions, particularly actions found to be linked to like, like domestic violence, right? That's not what background checks, background checks are based on mental illness diagnoses and criminal, any felonies, right? Drug use, shoplifting, right? So, you know, if we think about background checks that were based on action, you know, past actions and behaviors found, but to me that's like losing your license for having DUIs, which I think is a pretty valid public, maybe it's enforced in messed up ways, but that's a public health measure that I think makes sense. But losing your driver's license because you've been diagnosed with depression, right? And for people who say, well, whatever, people need to drive, they don't need to have guns, I think that's a troubling attitude towards something that, like it or not, is a constitutional right in this country. So the idea that, meaning the Second Amendment, so the idea that based on certain diagnoses or public health, we can just say, you know, I, 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 think, I think that that's a major problem. Now one of the key arguments in this question is whether background checks for like, let's say, mental illness would be a, an effective way or are a good way to prevent suicides. It's a really important question. Guns make up about half of suicides, and not only that, they're far more fatal uh, than other suicide attempts. So many more people try to do like uh, overdose on, you know, prescription drugs or whatever, but that, that has like a 14% fatality rate. Using a gun has like a 91% fatality rate. Um, and research has shown that most people who try and fail to commit suicide don't necessarily um, try again. Right? And so the idea of being able to prevent guns from suicidal situations is a critically important question. But, but I also think waiting periods for all gun buyers um, could be a way more just way to address the issue of gun suicide. And maybe more effective as well, given that more than half of those who die by suicide haven't been diagnosed with any mental health um, condition. But it, at least as of 2010, only 15 states had waiting periods for purchasing a handgun, right? Some more have, have waiting periods for purchasing so-called assault rifles, but those are used far less often um, in suicide. So it seems to me that like expanding waiting periods, making them universal, is clearly an important um, public health measure that isn't about profiling people. Um, by the way, everything I'm saying, I'd love to hear debates and feedback, you know, so yeah. Um, all right, then there's the question of, I think the left has a different approach to the question of self-defense. Yeah, we haven't even talked about that yet, right? And it's probably already time for me, for me to wrap up. Um, now look, public health research shows that guns bought for self-defense, I'm talking about personal self-defense at this point, um, are more likely to result in tragedy than in preventing a tragedy. But does that mean that, that having a gun isn't necessarily logical for a woman being stalked 
by an abusive ex for a long haul truck driver who's, who sleeps on the road at night for any number of other situations, right? What about Muslims? What about the people Democrats were trying to strip um, from their rights? Who, who has more justification wanting to get a gun in this country right now than Muslim Americans, right? That's the question of individual self-defense. But there's also the questions of selective, collective self-defense um, faced by the left. And this is something where I thought that Majumdar's um, piece really didn't, did a disservice by distorting this question to making it just about a, a fantasy of armed insurrection. I just want to quote from her piece for a second, because I think it's, I don't know, just do. Um, she writes, at the core of left ambivalence about gun control are notions of armed defense against a militarized state. Whatever the successes of such resistance in prior regimes, because of today's capitalist state's overwhelming superiority in the scale of violence it can perpetrate, ideas of armed resistance are both untethered to ground realities and actively counterproductive. The notion that today a civilian army can hold its own against the military might of the state is absurd. Yeah, totally. No one's talking about an armed civilian armory against the military. They're talking about what to do in Charlottesville when armed Nazis might attack them. It's about the right. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement used guns to protect themselves against the KKK. They weren't being absurd. Um, they understood that the police and the FBI weren't going to protect them, and we should too. That doesn't necessarily mean people, we, I, I think that armed, uh, arming ourselves in, in different situations is the right tactic, but that, the question of self-defense is not about armory, that, that using guns is our way of building a revolution against the government. It's about, it's about living in a country with an armed far right. And that's not, an old, that's not a new question um, in, in this country. Finally, I think a socialist approach to fighting gun violence needs to put forward the idea that gun politics aren't just about guns. Okay, it's gonna be like five more minutes, sorry. Aren't just about guns, but it's about power. It's about the politics of power. The NRA's vision of guns everywhere and always is based on the individual, projecting the individual power of a white man protecting his property. It's a powerful American tradition that runs in a straight line back to when that property was stolen Indian land and enslaved black people. A left-wing counter to that dismal politics isn't necessarily guns never and nowhere, which I personally would find wonderful, other people might not. It's also just not gonna happen in a country already awash in 300 million of them to say nothing about those in the hands of the police force, you know, et cetera. But the collective, but our vision is the collective empowerment of people coming together to confront their oppression. It's projecting historic struggles like the teacher strike in gun-heavy states like West Virginia or Arizona as, as more viable ways for people to protect their communities and regain a measure of control over their lives. So the stuff I'm laying out about a left-wing approach to gun control, what, does it mean, what, you know, what, what should we say, might have seemed pretty abstract and random a year ago. Um, but the protest movement that emerged after the Parkland shooting opened up new possibilities. It showed that the radicalization produced by having Trump in the White House was pushing high school students beyond the boundaries of the old debate. Whether or not they were all aware, fully aware they were doing it, and I think some of them definitely were. When Parkland students like Emma Gonzalez and David Hogg rejected police in school and talked about the school to prison pipeline, they weren't speaking from Bloomberg's gun control playbook. Um, nor were the black and Latino students in Chicago, Baltimore, LA, and elsewhere who joined the protests and added their own demands against police shootings and school closures. Some of the quotes from the students who spoke at the March for Our Lives in DC were incredibly powerful and I think spoke to the real potential of the kind of left-wing movement against gun violence that I want to talk about. I just want to quickly read a couple, a couple of those quotes. Edna Chavez, whose brother was killed in LA, said, for decades, my community of South Los Angeles has become accustomed to this violence. It's normal to see candles. It's normal to see posters. It's normal to see flowers honoring the lives of black and brown youth who have lost their lives to a bullet. 
How can we cope with it when our school district has its own police department? Instead of making black and brown students feel safe, they continue to profile and criminalize us. Instead, we should have a department specializing in restorative justice. We need to tackle the root causes of the issues we face and come to an understanding of how we resolve them. As someone whose brother was killed, right, she feels the urgency of stopping gun violence and she thinks we need to tackle the root causes of that violence. Um, Trevon Bosley from here in Chicago, whose brother was killed coming out of church, said, Chicago's violence epidemic didn't start overnight. It was caused by many problems we're still not dealing with to this day. When you have a city that feels it's more important to fund a college sports complex than to fund schools in impoverished communities, you have gun violence. When you have a city that feels we need more bikes for tourists than workfare programs to get guys off the streets real jobs, you have gun violence. When you have an Illinois governor, Bruce Rauner, who feels that funding anti-violence programs is, and I quote, non-essential spending, you have gun violence. Now, support for gun control has historically been higher among African Americans because they're far more likely to be killed by guns, to have loved ones who've been killed by guns. But I think that speech by Trevon Bosley shows why gun control leaders like Bloomberg and Rahm Emanuel haven't exactly been pushing for young black people to actually have a say over the politics uh, of this movement. Um, I think the protests this spring offered a glimpse of a very different potential movement against gun violence, one led by the oppressed, most oppressed by it, people of color, domestic violence, survivors, Native Americans, anti-war vets, people who suffer from mental disabilities, people who understand the conditions that create violence and the failure of ruling class institutions to stop it. Um, now, since April, those protests have died down. Attention has, of course, moved on to other atrocities like Trump's uh, concentration camps on the border. I don't know what mass shooting is going to bring back those protests, but I think the terrain of the gun debate has shifted fundamentally, and it's opened up a space for the left. And figuring out our approach to this issue is key, not just to change the bleak story of gun violence, but because I think it's part of the larger task that's being discussed all weekend at this conference, which is how the emerging left in this country can break free of the death trap of neoliberal centrism and create a left-wing alternative that can fight the right and build a better world. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org.